So I think, um, like many of you, um, if I were to count all the great blessings um, uh, that I received uh, last year, especially you know, as a community in, in the church, I would definitely have to say um, it was the baptism, right? And it was pretty cool that during our survey, I think a lot of people said the same thing. I would say, like, one, that's one. One A, or maybe core number one, was the baby dedication. <laughs> Those are some of the happiest, uh, most meaningful moments for me. And I think it was for, for a lot of us as well. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about that, and I think um, you know, something just about a brand new life that just, we just all appreciate. Um, but, you know, I was thinking of the people that were on this stage, definitely for the, for the parents of the children, of all of us, they're probably the ones who are most grateful and feel most in their hearts the sense of joy and wonder when they see their own children come into life. And I know that there's been, that, that, you know, the babies just didn't happen. <laughs> there was many prayers, many concerns, many sleepless hours, perhaps, that went into the babies coming and, and then the afterwards as well. And it's the same thing for spiritual birth as well. I think people who probably were most blessed, without a doubt, were the people who had a hand or a mouth, you know, who walked alongside of those people um, that they got to see whose lives were born, reborn in, in, in Christ. And, uh, you know, I, I was so blessed by that. And, but then the part of me, you know, that just likes to think and analyze, immediately started asking, whoa, but that's not the point, is it? As great as birth is, the point is not birth. We don't, mom and dad just was like, okay, we celebrate birth, and then let's go home and go on with our life. And it is the same thing with uh, spiritual birth as well. The point of birth is growth, right? And, and, and we pray and hope that each person physically would reach their maturity in, in the allotted time that God has set, and then they would do everything that God intended for them to do and be about. And that is the same way for spiritual growth as well. But, you know, um, the reason why the topic kind of grabbed my attention was because as a young Christian, I came to the Lord when I was about 20 years old. It took me years to figure out how do I grow, right? And, and when I looked around, there's, I could say there's generally two different uh, thinking. Now, I'm coming from kind of a very strict legalistic background in church. So in, in the circles that I was in, basically week after week, what I would hear on Sunday are a lot of the, the commandments of God, right? Do this, do this. If you're not doing this, you know, either you're going to hell or you're not a very, you know, you, you don't love Jesus or you're not grateful to him, so you better do this, right? On the other side are people who emphasize not the law but the command, uh, not the laws and the, and the, uh, the, the imperative scripture, but on the affirmations, the great truth that says Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. You don't have to do anything. It's all about grace. You just have to let go and let God. You know, he's, you're in the kingdom. That's great. You know, there's no differences in kingdom of God. And, you know, you'll be, you know, that's it, you know. Now, again, I'm being a little bit, uh, you know, like being, I guess, what's the word? You know, being, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thank you. But I'm showing, showing the two different sides. And, and the reality is there's, there's probably a lot of in-between us, right? I know that in my early 20s and 30s, one of the, the thoughts, the, the message that I heard often, if I were to summarize, was basically, here's what you need to be to be a better person. Better dad, better husband, better whatever. And, and let me show you three or five or seven steps that the Bible shows you how you, how you can be a better person, Right? 
And, uh, and again, all these are beneficial. No, don't get me wrong. All those are based on scriptures. But something always struck me as being, after I tried them, like there's something quite missing. I didn't know what it was, right? Until recently. I'm really excited because when, when I started studying uh, Second Peter, and again, I'm, I'm a, forgive me, I'm a little bit slow, but I finally saw something that said, wow, this, has been a, this really addresses a lot of the questions that I have for myself and the people around me that I care about spiritually. And so I, I pray that my, my, my first prayer is that, again, I, I, I cannot barely even just scratch this great passage, but I pray that you would take this opportunity to go home and think and reread it and struggle and ask God to show you how it applies to you. Because I believe that this passage is, if not the finest passage, probably one of them that really describes the, the spiritual dimensions of not only our spiritual birth, but especially our growth. And that's something that will motivate us to grow into the person that God had in mind when he not only created us, but by his grace gave us new birth. Right? So let's jump right in. So the letter begins, Simon Peter, a servant. Oh my goodness, I forgot. Sorry. Uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything, everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, I make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, then you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside. As our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's jump right in. So, okay. The last uh, section that we read gives us a bit of a background of this whole letter. The, this letter was actually written uh, by Peter as he was facing his impending death probably around 64 to 66 A.D. He knew, without a doubt, because the Lord had told him that he was about to die. And Peter's greatest concern was not himself. 
how he could extend his life or how he could escape the, the horrendous persecution of Nero. But instead, his concern was the continued growth of Christians and the church for whom Jesus Christ died. Now, the threat that he talks about in his time, not only in his time, but in the future to come, to us future readers, is the presence of false teachers in the midst of the believers and in the church and their false teachings that will prevent some from knowing Christ or others from being ineffective and unfruitful. And his tactic, what does he do? He writes a letter, a short letter. And he does these three things. He reminds them of the truth, as he says, that they already know, that we already know. But he takes the time to remind them. Because as we'll often see, a lot of the struggles in our spiritual life is not because we haven't learned something new. It's that we forget or we don't think about it or focus on it. He not only reminds them, he, he warns them, especially in chapter 2 and chapter 3, what is to come. If they persist on their way. And so he exhorts them towards continued growth. So that is the letter. But we're going to focus on the first part, which is kind of a summary of his ideas. That to him were the most essential things that he could pass on to the people that he loved and for the Lord that he loved. Now, in this first just two, letter, the, the two, the two verses, just a typical salutation beginning of a letter, we actually find a, a lot. We find that, that Jesus treasures our spiritual life. He treasures. He cares so deeply. And, and our spiritual life means so much to him because of the price that he had to pay for it. So Peter begins the letter saying, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, to those who through the righteousness of our God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. You notice that in the highlighted section, that in these two verses, he mentions Jesus three times. Why? And each time he uses a different title, Jesus Christ. And then the second one is actually, it's an amazing one. Some people say, well, Jesus, the Bible never really claims directly that Jesus is, is God. Well, here it is. Our God and Savior. He calls Jesus our God and Savior. And third, Jesus, our Lord. Now, I wish we had more time to unpack this, but let me just go straight. What this reveals is not so much about Peter. It reveals something about Jesus Christ, specifically that he treasures our spiritual life and growth. Where do I get that from? First, first, P Peter identifies himself as a, a servant and an apostle. A servant is actually a slave here. Slave is somebody who exists to do the will of his master. So basically, this letter and everything that Peter's life is about is being all wrapped up in doing what his master, Jesus, wants him to do. But not only is he, is he a servant, he's an apostle. Apostle means, as you, as you guys know, it's one who was sent out. And so what this brings us to are the, are, the, are the Gospels. If you read the Gospels, almost half of the New Testament are the four Gospels, right? And when you read it and to summarize it, Sometimes we think, well, it's all about Jesus' death. Actually, it's not. Majority of it is not directly about Jesus' death. It's about Jesus preparing, calling and preparing, and then sending out the disciples, the apostles. That's what it's about. So when you think about Jesus' life, we don't really know. We know something at the beginning. We know, and then what we know is really um, what, what he did from, the, from about age of 30 to about 30 to 33. And in those three years, the last week was, actually the last day was, you know, of course, obviously when, when Jesus went to the cross. We know that part well. 
But in the rest of the time, Jesus devotes literally every waking moment. And figuratively, blood and tears, actually literally blood and tears too, on his disciples, teaching them, preparing them, working on them. Because he was not only interested in them coming into the kingdom, he was interested in sending them out to call others into the kingdom. And what that required was spiritual growth. And that's what Jesus is, the Gospels are all about. Showing people not only into the kingdom, into this new spiritual life, but teaching them how they should grow and how they can grow. So Jesus paid a dear price, not only just three years, but just this incredible time and effort that he, uh, that, that he spent on these disciples and in their spiritual growth. You, you could argue that he bet everything on them because he knew he was, gonna, he was going to heaven. And the mission that he came to earth for and to even die for were in the hands of these 12 and 72 and 120. So this is how precious Jesus considers their spiritual growth. Now, the second, go back. Second, second thing is, he says, now he addresses, he identifies himself and he, and he tells these recipients to those who through the righteousness of, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received the faith as precious as ours. This is an incredibly compact but meaningful sentence here. He's, he's addressing all Christians, not just of Christians of his time, but every Christian who's ever receive spiritual life and become born again. And, and the way that people come into spiritual life is, first of all, he says, it is through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Through Jesus' righteousness, one. And, and second, the way that life comes is through faith, our faith. And what he says, this last part at the end, this faith is as precious as ours. That's, again, an amazing statement. What he's saying is that the faith that Christians have in Christ is of incredible, unsurmountable value. And here's the incredible thing. This, the value of their faith, is common across all Christians. When he says, as precious as ours, he's saying, look, you look at me and you think I'm special because I am the apostle. I saw Jesus. I was taught personally by him. You know, I even walked on water for a few minutes, a few seconds. And he's saying, look, my faith is just as precious as your faith, every one of your faith. You know, thank you, Hedging, for what you share this morning. It is so true. We may feel inadequate even spiritually, but don't ever think that somehow that lessens your significance or the preciousness and the, or the value of your faith. It is equally precious. Why? Because it doesn't depend on us. The value doesn't come from us. The value comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I know it's a little bit off topic, but I really want to just focus on this a little bit. Next, go to the next slide. What he just hints at here is actually unpacked really well, I think, in Romans chapter 3. Now, in Romans chapter 3, in, in talking about these things, righteousness and about, about uh, uh, salvation, faith, uh, here's what uh, Paul says. Paul begins by reminding us in yellow that the whole world is accountable to God. You see, people can deny God, but as, as soon as you think about God, when you think logically through, you come to the conclusion, we are accountable to him. Well, what do I mean by that? I studied physics as an undergrad. And, and you know, in physics, and for those of you who study physics or, you know, other physical sciences, you realize that there are these immutable laws of nature. 
you know, the three laws of thermodynamics, Einstein's equations, Newton's equations, whatever you name it, right? These are immutable. You can't, you can't change it or violate it. I could take this key and drop it, and I can tell you, okay, I, I used to be able to tell you, when, you know, when I was a physics guy, exactly how fast this thing would fall and hit the ground, right, and, and how long it would take because the laws of gravity are immutable. And, it, and all the laws, physical laws are that way. Now, if you think for a second that there is a God who had to create all of this incredible order and beauty and design, then you have to come to a conclusion. And if you believe that human beings are just more than just the physical, that there's a spiritual element of life that we may not quite figure it out scientifically, but it's just as valid, then you have to come to a conclusion that there are also immutable spiritual laws. The difference is this. Key, my key has no choice but to obey every law. But us who are sitting in this room, we're the only objects of universe, maybe us and the uh, um, angels, who can defy the laws of God. Not the physical, but the spiritual laws of God. Think about that. Right? Now, why is that so important? Because without this God who holds us accountable, we really can't do anything that we want. But as long as a God there who is held accountable, it doesn't matter what we think. You know, oftentimes, people nowadays especially, we have part of the world that, is, that follows different gods, different religions, different philosophies. And they have their own set of laws and own set of path. And then we have many, many, many in, 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 our, in our world who say, no, 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 religion is for the old people. This is, doesn't make sense. Hey, you know, we can be moral without God. We know right and wrong. We don't need this God. You see, both attempts are actually the first, in, in both of those thoughts, they're violating the first law that God had revealed, which is that there should be what? No other idols. And the biggest idols that we make are the idols of our own image and our own selves. You see, there are people, I've heard people say, you know what? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a good person. I try a little moral life, you know. Um, I, I, I don't see that much difference between a Muslim or a Christian or, or a Buddhist. And, you know, I just, I think this is right, this is wrong, I'll decide. I mean, I think about people like Thomas Jefferson who actually took the Bible and just cut it up into the parts that he felt was right. Let me tell you, the God of Jefferson was Jefferson. And in his mind, he thought, hey, I'm okay. Right? Under that God, under Jefferson's God, 100% of the time, Jefferson will no doubt go to heaven. But the problem is, Jefferson is not God, and neither are we. So we're caught in this dilemma. As long as there's a, there's a God who holds us accountable, all of us are in trouble. And the reason so many people don't believe in God anymore is because they don't want. We don't want to be held accountable, right? So Paul goes on. Um, and by the way, I forgot to mention, the reason why we th even think that way is because we are held under the power of sin. That's what sin is, is denying God and, and, and not wanting to follow him. That's the core idea of sin. So for as, um, so what happens? Next one, please. So people in their mind or in their lives choose this path of what basically righteousness, which means the right standing before God. You know, how do I escape or, or how do I pass the, right, the righteous standards of God who holds me accountable? So in their mind, they think as long as I follow these laws, I'm going to be okay. Problem is, in, in Romans chapter 3, uh, Paul makes this devastating argument and shows that, that actually under the revealed laws of God, no one, no one will be declared righteous. Nobody. Nobody can meet the standards of God. Nobody can defy 
the moral law of God that says that if you sin, you will die forever cut off from God. So path one doesn't work. Path two, on the other hand, is a righteousness that is not based on our righteousness, but it is righteousness that is, um, uh, that is accessible to us by faith only. So, so, so verse 20 says, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. It is given through, uh, 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 through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says in 24, he says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me uh, go on to the next one, please. And so and then he unpacks here, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Here's, God, here's the righteousness of Jesus, God, God, our, I mean, God our Savior Jesus. Because in his forbearance he held left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justified those who have faith in Jesus. Again, I know you know this, but let me remind you what Paul is saying here. What he's saying is, God, as the righteous judge, he cannot violate the laws that he created himself, moral laws. That, that sin leads to separation from him and ultimate death. That's his righteousness. He cannot violate that. But on the other hand, there's another idea of righteousness. And that is not just a stickler for the law. He's actually to be a righteous person. He's not just somebody who follows the law all the time. Right? I don't know if you have anybody like that in your life who are just really good at law-keeping. Law How much time do you want to spend with those people? No, they're not that attractive. And there's something missing, which is grace and mercy. Right? And God in his righteousness, he's righteous both as a judge and righteous as a person who's full of love, who's full of grace, who's full of mercy. So what does he do? He solves the dilemma by becoming man. So that he could pay the penalty of his own righteousness against sin. And in doing so, he opens up a way. And he asks of us only one thing. We cannot do anything because anything that we do is, is an attempt at substituting our righteousness for God's righteousness. Anything that we attempt to add to it is basically us substituting ourselves for God. Rather than God substituting himself for us. And so the only thing that we can do is receive and accept. Now, why is believing this so difficult? Part of it, as I've said, is because we're blinded by sin. But there's something else. We're also blinded by our own pride and ego. This is a humbling message that says, there's no difference between me and Hitler. That there's no difference between me and the worst person that I see around that I'm equally guilty before a holy God. I'm equally accountable. No, no difference. That is very humbling. And it is also very humbling to say, you know what? There's nothing that I can do except bring my dirty laundry. And I just have to plead and beg that he would take my garbage and have mercy on me. You know, this is what is meant and for this to be true, for us to be the recipient of this wondrous grace, Jesus had to die. So the, pace, the price that Jesus paid was his own life and his own agony and suffering on the cross. And what that shows us is how much Jesus treasure us being alive spiritually in him.
That's the first point. But there's another thing that Peter goes on. Jesus not only treasures our spiritual life, he actually treasures our spiritual growth. Yes, he accepts us as we are. But did you know that Jesus has expectations of us? Did you know? Have you ever thought? Because I often don't think about this. That Jesus treasures not only my life, my, uh, but he treasures my growth as well. And the reason I know that is because he's provided everything for me to grow spiritually. Why would he invest everything unless he really wanted that? How many of you, how would you feel as a parent or a friend, you take every penny you have out of your bank, you buy this precious, precious something for your children or your loved one, and they look at it and they say, okay, that's cool, and they just, just go on, never touching it, never using it. Right? Why would you buy something? Why would you, at a high cost, unless you really want them to use it? And this is how Jesus feels in this passage. What, 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 what is revealed in this passage is how Jesus treasures our spiritual growth. Let's, let's go on to the text. Um, he goes on and says, Grace and peace yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Well, again, let's unpack this. First of all, I like the part that says he's, God has given me everything I need for life, right? Wouldn't that be cool? That if God, hey, look, I'm not asking for a Tesla. But you know what? If I can get a little bit better car than I have right now, that, that'd be pretty nice. You know, I don't need to be perfectly healthy, but if I can get over my cancer, I don't have cancer, I'm just speaking. If I can get over my ill health, if I can get over the difficulties that I face in my other parts of my life, if I can get over my loneliness as a single person, why wouldn't God give me all of these? But that's not what God says. God says, here, he's, the, Paul Peter reminds us that Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, for a life that is oriented towards God and God glorifying to God, a spiritual life. What do I mean? So what, what, is, what do we take out of that is this. What this tells me is that Jesus may, may never solve every one of the problems that I have physically or temporarily on this earth. But what he can guarantee you is that he'll give you everything that you need to be godly in that circumstance. You know, I've really been learning more about this as I, was, as I participated in, in our house churches. Believe me, the best thing of house churches is not food, even though it's pretty good. It's seeing my brothers and sisters in every difficult stages of their life, struggling in their finances, losing jobs, having health difficulties, relational difficulties. You know, I used to joke, my, my wife and I, you know, our, our uh, conflicts, you know, marital conflicts was pretty regular right before house church. You know. But what I've learned as I journeyed through life with my brothers and sisters is this. That in the most of the most difficult circumstances, situations that we don't wish anybody to be in, and sometimes we think, oh, God has truly cursed us. That's why I'm going through this. God is punishing me. But guess what? In those circumstances, I've seen people grow spiritually. I've seen godliness kind of come out of their lives. So I testify this is true, that Jesus does, in every circumstances, gives us godliness so that we can live a godly life. Now, that is what Jesus prizes, that we live a godly life. Not a, quote-unquote, successful life. Not an easy life. 
Not a wealthy, healthy life, but a godly life. And go back, please. And, and furthermore, to unpack it a little bit more, notice that it says Jesus' divine power has give us, given us everything. This is such a huge point because we often try to, well, if you don't know Christ, you think you got to navigate through all, this entire life by your own power, and we can't. We can't handle these crises and difficulties that we encounter. We can't handle it. And even as Christians, we cannot do it by our own power and our wisdom. We are utterly dependent on, dependent on divine power. And again, that is the difference between, another difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. We not only acknowledge our, the need that we have from God, we're completely and utterly dependent on it. And because we are so poor and lacking, we actually receive divine help. Whereas the rest of the world have to do, do their best. Peter goes on that this divine power, and in fact, spiritual life and growth comes through the knowledge of God, he says. Grace and beers in abundance, right? Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Second phrase, by his own glory and goodness, again indicates that all these things that that God has for us, both our salvation and everything that we need for spiritual growth, comes not because we deserve it or we're smart enough to figure it out, but because of his own glorious goodness. Because God is good, he provides to us. So once again, we're on the receiving end by faith. The, the key point of this passage is this, that all this comes through knowing God. And the word knowing God here is actually a special word in Greek that indicates not just a factual knowledge, because everybody here in this room, even the little ones, know about God and know about Jesus. But not everybody know him. Not everybody know him in a personal sense as their, as their personal Lord and Savior. As, and, and not everybody, in a biblical sense, are united with Christ. You know, I encourage you, anyone here that kind of don't know exactly what I'm talking about, to continue asking and seeking. Talk to God in your car, in your sleep. Talk to other people around here. That you may come to a true knowledge, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he's the key in all of this. Let's go on. Um, now, it's interesting what he says. These things that, 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 that we need that he's willing to give to us, he says, and he explicates further what he means by that in verse 4. He says, through these, through his own glory and goodness, he has given us his very great precious promises. So the first thing to note again is this. Everything that Jesus has for us, it's not like automatic. Like It's not like he gives me everything that I need like right here and I can just start using it. No. What he gives us, everything that he gives us, he gives us as promises. Here's what that means. It means you have to believe in it once again. You have to believe that he can and will give you everything that you need in your moments of struggle, in your, in, in your everyday life, in your moments of crisis. That he'll give you everything that you need, but you must go to him expecting that he will be there and answer you when you cry out to him. You know, this is such an important principle in spiritual life, that everything that Jesus gives us is through promises, because what he's trying to do is, like what the writer of Hebrews tells us, is for us to do the one thing that we need in order to please God, which is faith. It is impossible to please God without faith. That we must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Here's how that works. 
The Bible shows me, for example, promises me. And one of the great promises, I don't know how it works, is uh, what, what Peter says, uh, what Paul says to uh, the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your family will be saved. Now we know that not every believer, is every members of their family are saved. But with that promise, what I can do is I can go to God and say, God, please, your word said it, please work in my son and my daughter to bring about a true conversion. May they go beyond head knowledge into a personal relationship. May they realize their sinfulness. You know, I go to him because what else am I going to do? I can't, if I keep talking to my kids, I'm just going to drive them away. Right? But at the same time, even as I do everything that I can in a way that doesn't push them away, I have to keep going to the Lord and, and ask and with, with an expectation that he will listen to me and in due time he will supply not only what I need, but what my children will need. This is everything that we need. We've got to approach it as a promise, claiming uh, his goodness, trusting in, in his word, and approach him that way. That is what a spiritual life is. And that is how we grow spiritually. Now, what specifically does he do as we approach him? What are the promises? If I have to summarize it, well, he does. Go back, I'm sorry. Is the last phrase says, so that through them, the promises and the fulfillment of them, that you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. In a nutshell, the reason why not all of us are accountable before God and we cannot save ourselves is because we are corrupted by evil desires. We are faulty instruments. We cannot do it, no matter how hard we try. And that's true. I mean, as somebody said, the only, like, like a theological statement that is verifiable by all experience is human depravity. It's true. Look at children. They're born depraved. All they care about is themselves. That's what flesh is. You know, I still remember, I mentioned this before, how with our first child, you know, my wife had a hard time nursing him. She was, she was cold. She was, she was tired. It was hurting so much. My baby, Noah, didn't care. All he wanted was he wanted his food. And he would cry and wail and nonstop unless he got it. He didn't care about mom and dad. That's flesh. And that is part of what it means. It's not just that we're evil like Noah's a, like a monster. No. Part of what it means to be human is that we're controlled by this desire that make us self-centered and selfish to the core. You know, we don't need to, uh, like, read the Bible for this. Just read the newspapers. Watch Twitter. Look at Twitter. Look what people do to each other. Right? So what Jesus does, and the way that he helps us to, uh, uh, enables us to become godly in our life, is that he helps us to escape this corruption that is in the world and mostly in me. And he does that by allowing us not to become divine. We, we can't, we'll never in that way. But by participating, by having the life of God coming in us and we becoming part of the life of God. Through, through the Holy Spirit. And this, again, for those of you who are sitting, is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. That we actually have a real, verifiable way of es escaping the corruption in our own selves and begin to experience supernatural transformation in us. Let's go on. So, um, the implication is, is this. Jesus is totally committed to our spiritual growth. That's why he's given not only spiritual life, but everything we need for our spiritual growth. So we are then also called to totally commit 
uh, to our own spiritual growth. So Peter goes on, for this reason, because Jesus has done all this for you and given everything, made everything accessible, because of these great promises, he says, here's the part. Make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and, 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 and so forth, leading up to love. Now, the part I highlight is uh, uh, make every effort. We're, to- we're called to totally commit to our own spiritual growth. If Jesus is all in it, he's asking, I want you to be all in it too. You know? Now, the analogies that I really love is what I uh, learned from my last study of the book of James. You remember, remember what James says about the farmer who patiently waits, right? And I explained how in the Middle East, there was only one way of farming. You work hard in the dry ground, expecting and believing that at the right time that God will send the early rains and, and the latter rains. If God doesn't do his part, you're toast. But the flip side is true. God may send rain like crazy, but if you don't go out there beforehand, beforehand by faith, toil and, and, and cleaning out your field and planting the seeds, you're not going to have harvest either. What I like to call a holy partnership is precisely what Peter is talking about here. That God does everything through his promises. We have to believe in it. And we must also make every effort. Let me just give you one example. The, one, the key, I would say, in spiritual growth is scripture. And this is why Peter wrote this. I don't know about you, but I, you know, the, I, the quickest way to cure insomnia is read the Bible at night. Right? Every time I decide at the beginning of the year, oh, this year I'm going to read through the Bible. Let me tell you, today is what, 16th? I'm 12 days behind already. I'm catching up, right? I just like, I got to take about five days from work just to read the Bible whole day, right? It is, God doesn't make it easy on us because what he wants us to do is to invest in it and treasure our growth and value it as he does. You know, well, here's what it means. I may not feel like it, but I'm going to pick up the Bible one more time. And it may make me fall asleep. I may not know what's going on, but I'm going to just read it. Why? Because I believe that as I do my part, he's going to meet me on the pages of Scripture. He's going to meet me. He may not meet you the first time. You read, it's like, okay, nothing happened there. But guess what tomorrow I'm going to do? I'm going to try again. Why? Because I believe in him. He's going to meet me. I do it again. I read it, and it's like I'm reading through numbers, bunch of names. I go to the next day, same thing. Next day, same thing. How many days? I don't know. I can't tell you. But guess what? Jesus will meet you one day. What he asks us to do is to walk by faith. Let me give you another example. You're praying for somebody. I mentioned my children. The VIP is what we call in our church. That God has laid a burden on you. You ask them and they say no. You know? Every time I ask a VIP, something like something happens. You know? One person a couple of weeks ago got like a stomach, a food. Saturday night they, they were going to come. Sunday, uh, but uh, Saturday morning they said they're going to come. Saturday night they had food poisoning. The next week, another thing. Something always happens. So what do I do? Just stop? No. If the God has given me a burden for that person, I must continue in prayer. I must keep making efforts to reach out to them. Why? Not because my effort will cause and move their hearts. But through my effort, I will meet God one day. And that person will meet God. This is the core principle of spiritual life. What it means to make every effort in the holy partnership with God. And what's amazing is this. As much as Jesus prizes my spiritual growth, he wants me to become part of it. 
Because as he sees value in my growth, he wants me to have the joy of participating in it as well. There's nothing more exciting and rewarding, I promise. Next verse says, same thing what I was just saying. At the base, so these, uh, there are actually seven virtues on top of faith. Faith is the most important component in all of this. Faith is the way we deal with God in everything, not just in our salvation. The foundation of these efforts is faith. we got to have faith. And the summation, what is all of this that he wants us to make every effort for? It's, next person, is, is love. Now, it's interesting. If you look at everything in between, goodness, self-control, these were actually common Greek virtues and values. And whatever city of the world that you go to, reasonably good people will agree, oh, these are all good things. This is why Jesus is so popular. Yeah, I don't believe all this divine stuff, but his teaching was good. And they'll list out goodness all the way up to mutual affection. What they will not talk about, apart from being a true follower of Jesus, is faith. Right? Because faith tells them that they're accountable before God and they're helpless before him. It is faith in him and, the, and, and knowledge of Jesus in a personal sense. That makes us different. So we do the rest of it like the world does, but we do it on the foundation of faith and with the anticipation that Jesus will meet us. Furthermore, our ultimate goal is agape love. What is that? It's the love with which God loved us when he sent his son to die for us. It is this unconditional, all-forgiving, self-sacrificing love that the world doesn't know. It is the love that causes people to turn their right cheek. Um, left cheek. This type of love, the world doesn't know. And to, and, to, and to the world, it is foolishness. You see? And, and here's, a good, here's a cool thing. If the ultimate form of agape love is to care for the other person's welfare above everything else, and, and, and the highest value, most valuable thing about that person is their faith, guess how we love people? We help love people by helping them to come to know Jesus. And have faith. You know, yes, helping people financially in times of need, all those are great things. Those are the, the six virtues in the middle. But the highest form and the one which all of our efforts should sum up in is the love that leads us to want to commit to their spiritual life and want and pray for and want to see their spiritual growth. I'm running out of time. Let's, let's go um, Let's go. Um, yeah. Um, so, next one, please. Yeah. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, Peter goes on, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, again, a key thing. Jesus expects us to be fruitful. And the way we do that is to continually work on and making every effort to see that our love and all of its different dimensions of goodness and, 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 um, and self-control and mutual affection, all these things build up towards love that ex expresses itself for, for, for concern and deep care for, for the spiritual well-being of the people around us. And without that, we're, we're utterly unfruitful. Next one, please. Let's go. Sorry, guys. This Okay. Um, just a quick reminder, one of the last things Jesus said, he says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. 
Um, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. These are the standards. These are the goals and the metrics which we should evaluate ourselves and saying, are we unfruitful? Am I making every effort that I can in faith or am I just happy that I'm not going to hell because I'm just going to do my thing? Let's go on. Um, Peter goes on and says, but whoever does not have these qualities of love, he says, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past. This is, describes a person who've lost their focus and who've lost their vision for life. Rather than this, this agape love being the, the very thing that drives, that drives us, other things take its place. Our careers, sometimes our children and their position in society, our hobbies, our financial security. We make a lot of efforts easily because the world, after all, pursues after those things. And Jesus says, look, if you find yourself not growing spiritually in these areas, then what you've done is that you've lost your vision and focus. And you've forgotten that Jesus has forgiven all of your sins so that you can build on this forgiven state all these great things that he wants to accomplish in us. That's what Jesus cares about. Let's go on. So he goes on, uh, therefore, my brothers and sisters, he says again, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Again, this is a lot of meaning here, but what he's basically saying is that the evidence that we're spiritually alive and that we're, is that we're spiritually growing. That if you have no desire towards your spiritual life, if you have no spiritual concern, then what it shows me, I mean, if I don't have those, what he, sh- what he should t- communicate to me is that I'm probably not spiritually alive. And if I'm not spiritually alive, here's your opportunity to go back to Romans and to consider where I really stand and to cry out in faith to the one who made me. Because the Bible again again reassures us that everyone who genuinely seeks after God in faith, God will meet them in faith, made them according to his promises. Okay. Ultimately resulting in the kingdom of God. Okay. Our true commitment to the holy partnership of our spiritual growth is reflected in our total commitment to the spiritual growth of those around us. That's what I was saying about love, right? We, making our life focused on towards love causes us naturally to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of my children, of my wife, of my family, of my neighbors, of my co-workers. That's just a natural development. And, and if you don't have that, again, it is time to have that honest conversation with, with, uh, with ourselves before the Lord. Let's go on. Um, and so he demonstrates, this is interesting, my, this is my final point. In this portion, exactly what we've been saying. So listen to Peter again. He says, so, so I will always remind you, he's making every effort of these, uh, 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 of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Peter gives us an example of what he means to make every effort, even to the final moments of his life, that is concerned not just about his personal security and welfare, not just about the financial or other state of his own family. What he's ultimately concerned about is our spiritual growth and life. Um, 
Of course, what did he learn this from? Well, he learned it from Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did for him and demonstrated for him. That in the last week of his life, Jesus spent every precious moment that he had before he went to the cross, teaching his disciples and inviting the hostile population of Jerusalem one more chance to listen to him and enter into that eternal life. The, literally the last work, thing that Jesus did on the cross was to respond to the, a criminal who looked at Jesus and said, surely this man is innocent and I'm not. Jesus, remember me in your paradise. And even in all his pain and agony, Jesus says, surely you'll be with me in paradise. He was concerned for the spiritual welfare of his neighbor who was on the cross with him. This is where Peter got his values from. This is where Peter learned his drive from. And may we also learn from this letter what it means to live such a holy, a life wholly dedicated into treasuring the right things of this world. That even as Jesus tre treasured my own spiritual growth, may we also make priority for our own spiritual growth. And even as Jesus made every effort, and even as Peter learned to make every effort, to reach out to the people around him with this life-saving message. May we also be found in him like this. Let's pray.